Hi, and welcome to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast looking at international politics from Berlin with me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gashburnett. Join us for an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. Hello and welcome back to Berlin Side Out, the new foreign affairs podcast in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Aaron Gashpernet, a journalist specializing in German politics, and I'm here today with my friend and co-host Benjamin Tallis, senior research fellow here at the Council for uh, this uh, particularly exciting and I shall say, pivotal episode of Berlin Side Out. And that's because we are going to be moving from the thematic uh, issues that we've been discussing in German foreign policy, from defense to geoeconomics and energy, to the key relationships that uh, Germany has with uh, other countries, partners, allies, regions. Now, true to many German foreign policy discussions, you might expect us to go first westwards, uh, specifically to Paris or even perhaps to Washington. We are not going to do that. We are going to go east first uh, to uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Ben, why have we chosen to do that? Because, Aaron, understanding Germany's relations to Central and Eastern Europe is crucial to understanding where it's gone wrong in the past, but also how it can get things right in the future. This is a region which has been pivotal to some of the the core moments of Germany's history, for, for better and for worse. And it's no secret that Germany's relations with Central and Eastern Europe have been one of the most problematic aspects of its policy over the last 20 years overlooking the region, these Zwischenländer, these lands in between, in favor of looking to Moscow, for example, created endless problems and led to, in part, the the situation we see in Ukraine, but also the uh, fraught state of its relations with Warsaw, Berlin's relations with Warsaw, and an underexplored potential of its relations in the Baltic states and in Central Europe more widely. So we think it's really important to actually take a different view and to look Berlin side out to the east and to the south and to understand how Germany can better leverage those friendships that exist there while getting right the things it's got wrong in the past. Well, and we also, I think, have to um, add that a huge part of Germany's uh, challenge and something that's, I think, very necessary in its foreign policy is, as you've suggested, to treat these countries and diplomatic relations with these countries in their own right, in their own way, rather than managing them as some sort of, uh, in the context of a larger relationship to Russia, to really take out of this this old imperial uh, way of looking at Europe and the world, this sort of great power thinking. Uh, one thing that we've often talked about and I've often said is just because we sort of eschewed imperialism for ourselves in Germany does not mean that we gave up um, the mindset of thinking in an imperial way, right? That's right. The imperial gaze persists. And this is something that Central Eastern European allies of Germany have been very clear about saying and have been rightly upset about uh, for a long time. As It's detrimental not only to their interest, but it's ultimately detrimental to Germany as well, as we've seen with the focus on Russia and where that led in terms of energy policy, but also in terms of the flawed geostrategy based on uh, geoeconomics, based on Vandal durch Handel, that indeed ignored these countries, basically. Who ended However, up being what we, right 
who ended up crucially being right, but also getting that right in future means taking a different geostrategic outlook. It means having a strategic outlook that sees the agency of smaller states as being important. That's a key element of what we call neo-idealism, right. uh, which has been structuring our discussions here in Prague. Without further ado, let's listen into that conversation that we had about that in Prague. We're sitting in Prague for a particular reason, in uh, one of the capitals of Central and Eastern Europe, which has, in recent years, become one of the key hubs of defending and renewing liberal democracy. We've seen that the wake-up call given to us all by Ukrainians, that we have to fight to defend democracy where it's threatened, we have to fight to defend our values where it's threatened, has resonated particularly across Central Eastern Europe. And we've seen both rhetorical and material leadership provided by leaders of the Baltic states, of Czech Republic, and obviously from Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine. We've got three fantastic guests to talk about this today and talk about how that relates to wider issues in defending, renewing, and spreading liberal democracy. We're joined by uh, Thomas Ilves, former president of Estonia, the journalist and author Carolyn Greuter, and Alexander Windmann, a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel and former director for European Affairs at the National Security Council, who's currently a Hauser leader at the Harvard Kennedy School. Thomas, coming to you first, why has this resonated so much in Central Eastern Europe and what has been the leadership that's been shown? Well, I think we go back to the uh, to the late 1940s and early 50s when, in fact, the United States promoted this idea of liberty, freedom, democracy, and uh, and a, with a promise of liberation uh, that was taken up by people in Eastern and Central Europe, which uh, basically, uh, well, despite its problems in the, with the Berlin uprising in '53 and and, uh, and the Hungarian Revolution, remained something that everyone believed in. And we did have Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, sort of promising liberty. Now, where, whereas in Western Europe, uh, I think uh, it wasn't, it didn't resonate. They'd been liberated. They didn't care. Uh, and then this is compounded, I think, by the experience, the experience of Central and Eastern Europe with the profound cynicism with which we were treated by Western Europe from the beginning of the real liberation, 89-91. I mean, just look at the call memos from uh, last, that were released last year. I mean, no, we don't even want them to be independent. That's the Baltic states. So, you know, we don't, no, they will never join any of our organizations. Basically, every country in Western Europe looking down upon these countries and realizing they were not about to defend liberal democracy. Uh, instead, you saw... I mean, you saw the acquiescence with the, on the part of Western Europe with the occupation of Georgia. Uh, you saw, I mean, follow, I mean, even in the United States with Obama resetting, you saw Nord Stream 2 a year after uh, the, the 2014 occupation of uh, Crimea. And you, we began to realize that if we don't stand up for this, Western Europe and the United States, especially under Trump, would not stand up for the ideals that had been promoted, first and foremost, by the United States, but which had liberated and made Western Europe prosperous. And this profound cynicism of Western Europe toward the countries of Central and Eastern Europe uh, is, I think, at least in, I can say, not only on my part, but a lot of people in my area of the world, was that, well, somebody better do something. And this was crystallized, uh, really, by the uh, by the invasion in February of 2022 of Ukraine. Absolutely. And 
Caroline, this really put the boot on the other foot somehow. I mean, Central Eastern Europe hasn't been necessarily for many Western Europeans a, a bastion of liberal democracy in recent years. It was known as the awkward squad in the EU, the Visegrad Four and so on. I think one of, one of the things I would say is that when we talk about Central and Eastern Europe, it used to be like, you know, one group, but it isn't anymore. So in a way, I think many nations, many countries are emancipating themselves. I mean, when you look at, I was just in Hungary last week, the situation is dire there. Um, so what are we talking about when we're talking about Central and Eastern Europe? It's not a, a, a monolithic block any longer, which has good sides and which has bad sides as well. Second, what strikes me since Russia's invasion in, in, in Ukraine is how, of course, Central and Eastern Europe are, are closer to the fire. Huh? Um, moreover, several of them had been warning us for years, for decades, watch Russia. Huh? They're coming if we, don't, if we don't do anything. And we in Western Europe, I'm Dutch, you know, we look at America, we look at, we look at um, uh, Britain, um, very transatlantic. We weren't, you know, we thought they were, we understood their frustration with Russia and their fears as well, but we thought they were overdoing it. Well, they're not. Huh? And I think this gives a lot of, you know, the Baltic countries, Poland, um, a new place in Europe. I think we're, we're, we're ashamed is maybe a big word, but we, we, I think, acknowledge in Western Europe that we've, that we've been wrong on this question that would be naive and we should have listened better. So I'm based in Brussels. Um, and what you can clearly see is that central and eastern uh, leaders, ministers, heads of state and government, have more weight at the negotiating tables in Brussels. And I find this very interesting. And it's sad, of course, that you need a war to get to this. But this emancipation is, uh, is good, in my view. It was, I think it was Larry Wolf, uh, and there's a link to this in the show notes, who said that uh, there are two Europes. There's the Europe that knows and the Europe that waits to be known. And the Europe that waits to be known is always Eastern Europe. And this has become a moment of knowledge, I think, for a lot of people in, in Western Europe. As you say, understanding that complexity, that diversity, but it's been helped along by the fact that Central Eastern Europeans have had so many great figureheads, great leaders, actually, at this time. Yeah, but also great non-leaders. Huh? Let's face it. <laughs> there's some great leaders. Um, who are who are Kaya Kallas? I think is is an example for 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 many. Um, so yes, this is good. But we were also facing uh, people like 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 Viktor Orban at the same time. Right, and this I mean it puts a point on the fact it's not just geography that determines this. It's also not history because the Hungarians, as Thomas mentioned, have a history of uh, with the Russians as well. Here, it's not your history; it's what you do with it. And Alex, I mean this. Viewed from across the Atlantic, um, we often talk in Europe about this power shift that Caroline just mentioned that's potentially going on. How is that seen in Washington? Washington's its own kind of uh, ecosystem with policymakers that are kind of plugged in to a certain extent to what's going on overseas in the, in the transatlantic uh, alliance. Uh, but even there, we talk about Europe in kind of shorthand as in its entirety. But in fact, I think there you know, clearly is an east-west divide. And I think while history and geography don't maybe answer all the questions about why uh, Central and Eastern Europe are the vanguard, they pretty much uh, provide the bulk of the answer. 
And the history is pretty clear that, uh, that Eastern and Central Europe were part of the Soviet bloc, so they have a close history with the Kremlin. They understand who, what the Kremlin is and the threat it poses. And geography is equally critical uh, as a frontline. St- uh, these are the frontline states uh, seeing their, the challenges, the security challenges on their horizon. I don't even necessarily say that it's, you know, ideologically like, uh, you know, Prague actually was a driving force from an ideological standpoint in the transformation of Central Europe. But as a whole, that's probably the exception. Maybe Poland, too, fits in that category. I think it's mainly security calculus and the, the acute dangers from, you know, the perceptions of a Soviet bloc, perceptions of the Kremlin that drive this East-West divide. And something that the Western Europeans simply can't really understand. They didn't live under the uh, yoke of the Kremlin for a couple of generations. uh, And therefore, it's hard for them to understand that the Baltic states in particular, who were occupied by the Soviet Union, are going to be very, very um, aggressive in staking out their independence and self-determination because they didn't enjoy it for, for, for decades. So... I think that explains a lot of it. From the U.S. perspective, uh, I think there is a, you know, maybe a growing understanding that there is this this divide from the policymakers that somehow you have to both account for the fact that Western Europe is a bit lethargic in responding and Eastern Europe and Central Europe have a urgency and a need to meet their security uh, requirements. And this is the art of diplomacy, figuring out how to you know, bring those two groups that want to move at completely different paces together. I think it's worse, actually, than what you say, in that basically what we saw uh, and have seen is what I call an anti-empiricist bias on the part of Western Europe, uh, driven partially by the economic opportunities of doing business with Russia, which meant that experience with Russian behavior was dismissed, and not only dismissed, but disparaged. Uh, I mean, just one example. When in 2007, one of the first cases of genuine hybrid war, if you use that term, when uh, Estonia was shut down by massive DDoS attacks. The so-called Bronze Night. Yeah. Right? Um, now, Estonia already then was more advanced digitally than any country in continental Europe. When we went to NATO and we said we have been shut down by these attacks, the answer to us from several countries, oh, you're just being Russophobic said to us by people who couldn't tell the difference between a laptop and a toaster oven. And so this was, and so, I mean, it was, it, it was an, this anti-empiricist bias that those Eastern Europeans, we, we're not gonna listen to them, they don't know what they're talking about, said by people who didn't know anything. I mean, if I look at the leaders of Western Europe in the past 20, 25 years, their understanding of Russian behavior, of threats to democracy, uh, is really sort of at a, at a sort of high school level. I just wanted to quickly chime in and say that I think this is one of the challenges to the to the European project, to the European Union, is that uh, the whole idea is supposed to be about pluralism, uh, but in fact, there's a lot of self-service coming from the leading states in, in the European Union, uh, and they rather have uh, strong economic links with Russia than really make investments in, into Europe itself into members in the constituent states and into Central and Eastern European Union because the economic benefits are lie further to the East. All of this echoes what Caroline mentioned a second ago about the warnings that were ignored and getting to the heart of why those warnings were ignored. Again, it's that old hierarchy, the Europe that knows. 
and the, the essential core of the European Union, as it's still seen by some of its countries. Caroline, you, you live in that core, and I want to ask you about how, how it's viewed from there. So, from the Europe that knows. From the Europe that knows. Well, I think... <sighs> Talking about Central and Eastern Europe is a caricature, as I just said, but talking about uh, those naive Western Europeans is also a caricature because there are lots of uh, flavors there too. When we look at Northern Europe, they used to be there just for the market, following uh, the UK. Look at their position on uh, the war in Ukraine and on Russia, which is clearly not the same as some other some Western European countries. So I would I would be a little bit cautious. I think what's happening in France nowadays, France used to be, you know, very much in favor of deepening the EU that we had, not enlarging it. Um, you know, small concentric circles moving further and and and, and so on. France has completely changed. Huh? It was uh, it's it's now in favor of, of, uh, of new enlargements in Europe. France was the country of the enlargement fatigue, for instance. But it has, is rec- I was in Paris for a couple of days for talks in the ministry, and this really struck me, because they say this fatigue is not going to help us any further. Ukraine's security is our security. And the same goes for the Western Balkans. I mean, there are shifts taking place. So I, I would caution a little bit against too much of, you know, one block of Europe against the other block. What I find interesting is that you see all kinds of, and it's confusing as well, and maybe frustrating, but things are in, evolving in a, in, a, in, a, in a different way. What you see, for instance, in the, in the migration debate, which is one of the, the most difficult ones we have, um, is that many Central and Eastern European countries, they were like, no, 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 we don't want any, uh, 2015, any of these refugees, we don't want uh, any, any migrants or refugees. Now, without a peep, without meowing, Poland is, you know, absorbing, uh, I don't know how many, how many million, 1. 1 million of Ukrainians. And people are saying, yeah, they're white and they're mainly women and children and they're Christian, so it's easy. But I find this very unfair because they're doing it. 80% is, is not taken care of by the state, but by people at home. I think this is, a, this is great and we, we couldn't emphasize this enough. But moreover, this changes the position of Poland in the migration debate. And the same goes for Slovakia and, and, and the Czech Republic because all of a sudden they're grappling with issues that Western European countries have been grappling with and never managed to solve for, for, for decades, which is integration. So suddenly we can talk, I, I won't, don't want to overdo this, but things are moving in that debate because they, they, they know what the other side is talking about, you see? So a lot of gradual undercurrents are... Are, are taking place, which I find very interesting, and that you see in Brussels. I hope it's right, because, I mean, I'll just say, six months after the news came out on Bucha, Emmanuel Lemania Macron went and castigated the East Europeans as warmongers in September of 2022. When I see it happening over and over again, I mean, when I see, rather, that, that there, there's a consistent policy emerging, then I will believe it. But this you know, the attitude there and also in Germany where, I mean, I call us the Zwischenländer, the lands in between, the ones who can be ignored or, or they have been ignored in favor of the sort of El Dorado of Russia business opportunities. 
Um, I mean, I have not seen a real change. You see little changes and you say, oh, okay, well, that's a new step. And, you know, Slo uh, Macron's speech in Slovakia was an admission. But that was a sea change. That speech was a big change. And you, when you go to the ministry and you talk to people high up, but also, you know, little heads of desks uh, in the Western Balkans here and there, they all echo the same words now. How do you say Titan vendor in French? Uh, this for, our, for us talking to the, the experts we know on France, they say the same thing. They say that this is a move from the younger guard of French civil servants, from the younger defense thinkers there, who actually see France's strategic interest as being better served by building better relations with Central Eastern Europe. They see the strategic mistake. Where we don't yes. see the shift is where we're based, in Germany. Exactly. And the French are also complaining about this. France and Germany are not in the same boat. I think both of them came... It took time for them to acknowledge that we, we need to get Ukraine into the European Union. It took time. So yes, I agree with you that in the beginning Macron was like, mm, maybe not, maybe not a good idea. But now they have fully, fully embraced it. What about NATO? I'm curious about NATO. I think in NATO it's the same thing. It is the same thing in NATO. France has changed. It is a little bit, and France is trying to pull uh, Germany as well, but it is very difficult in Germany. They are, and this, this was my question to Macron in Bratislava, when he said we want to rebuild trust with Central Eastern Europe, and he said, yeah, but you've got to take some concrete steps to do that, and supporting NATO membership would be one, and we, we know from the sources that have been released and from elsewhere, that it was not them who were blocking, the Germans were blocking, the Americans were blocking. The country that has to change most in, in, in the entire European uh, region is Germany. The EU was set up to deal with Germany. Germany could never be a superpower dominating the continent again. And it's still about Germany. Now, suddenly, we need security, we need defense in Europe, and urgently. The French understand this. Moreover, they have an army. I mean, it's not what it used to be, but still, it's one of the biggest in Europe. Germany doesn't have an army to speak of. And it is very, very difficult psychologically for the Germans to suddenly change course and become a military power because that's what we're asking of them. So no country has to change more than Germany. And it is slow and it is divided and it fears itself most and the others fear it. Well, I, I, this is true. I mean, when you look around Europe, you'll see, I mean, Sweden dumped 200 years of neutrality. Finland, which had been going until last year through a, a post-Finlandisierung period, I mean, they didn't, I mean, it's a bizarre behavior on their part, but which was basically being a, uh, a Russian uh, sort of, sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, four-post. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, in translating whatever it was uh, that Russia sent to them, which was kind of, which was not what Russia was doing, Meloni's change. I mean, I, we feared Meloni coming to power would mean, oh no, now we're going to have Liga Nord sort of and all of these crazies. No. Even Spain is getting, I mean, is moving. So it really does leave. Well, also the Netherlands, which was, uh, I mean, Rutte was very standoffish on everything and suddenly uh, there he is. He's, so what we have is, is everyone around Germany has changed in the past year and a half. But Germany has changed too. But we want it to change more and faster. So we're constantly castigating the Germans like, ah, you don't do anything. They do a lot. I think what if I were German, I'd say, what do they amount to? Look at their GDP. I mean, really. I mean, okay. I mean, who cares, right? I mean, this is... And even and disregarding the fact that all these areas are getting richer. I mean, my country now has the same GDP per capita as Spain. So like, well... That's, I mean, and then you add the other ones. I mean, I just haven't followed the other ones, but basically 
it is, it is changing, but nonetheless, the economic heft of Germany is so great that we can be discounted and in fact are. We are here in Prague, neighboring country of Poland, on their election day, October 15th, which is very much hanging in the balance. How much more influential could Poland be if it had a more liberal approach? Or is that the wrong way of looking it at it? It could be, I mean, Poland, I think, has, under this government, done everything that it can to diminish its importance. I mean, it was it was there on a platter. And then what do they do? Instead, they go and demand reparations from Germany. I mean, this anti-German attitude, domestic policy, sort of dismantling rule of law, all of which has simply taken away this enormous potential clout, especially right now. I mean, they still have some because of, you know, their position with Zhezhov and being a transit point for for armaments to Ukraine. But otherwise, it would be the moral voice and probably have a lot more influence in sort of keeping the Germans down in the old Ismay sense than uh, anything else. And instead, it seems to have actually given ammunition to some German political elites to basically say, okay, well, we, you know, I mean, we're not going to listen to these guys. They're, they're just nuts, right? In the beginning of the war, though, there was some movement. I think they, the, the, the Polish leadership wanted to... To use its its centrality to the war effort because it became a frontline state, state overnight, to get out of this of this the corner it had boxed itself into on 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 the rule of law issue, so they started implementing some of the reforms that Brussels was 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 demanding. Uh, so I thought this was very interesting, and, and, but they are too I think they've proven too ideologically driven, and elections were coming to really pursue it. So they've fallen back, but there was a momentum, I think, and they saw it, everybody saw it. And I'm, I'm really sorry, it seems to have passed. I think, frankly, American policymakers don't spend a huge amount of time thinking about uh, Poland or Hungary um, in, in the more conservative Republican uh, uh, chambers, you'll see some affinity for uh, Poland and Hungary because they're seen, seen as conservative bastions. Uh, certainly the media around Hungary and uh, Tucker Carlson, one of our personalities, prominent um, ultra-conservative personalities, visiting Hungary on a regular uh, basis and uh, elevating Hungary as some sort of uh, conservative model. Um, so I, I think, frankly, those two countries stand to gain a lot if there's a, uh, a turn to uh, back to Trumpism or something of that nature. But in general, I think it's, I agree with my colleagues here, it's a missed opportunity. Hungary kind of has been written off for, for some time, but uh, it's a mi hugely missed, huge missed opportunity for Poland to take on the, the leadership of, uh, of Europe and be the center of gravity for, for Europe. Maybe not the leader, but to stop boxing so far below its weight. Well, I think it's been arrested by the politics, by the ideological politics, because it was a focal point. I mean, Amer the American public saw how welcoming the uh, Polish people were towards uh, Ukrainian refugees. It is the conduit for uh, arms to Ukraine, and it could have seized the moment and taken on the, the role of, of leadership in Europe. And it, it's also really engaging in the material rearmament process that Germany is still thinking about or claiming to think about doing. I mean, we're seeing thousands of heavy armored pieces coming in, 
bucket loads of artillery, HIMARS purchases, F-35s. I mean, this is the genuine... 800 tanks from South Korea. There we go, right. I mean, this is it. But that's a three to five year time horizon to, to rearm for a fight that's taking place now. And frankly, if Ukraine doesn't get the support it needs, will be over in the three to five years. That, that's also very true, but nonetheless, Poland is, is taking that role. So, Carol, I want to I want to push you there because you said, um, well, maybe not the leader. Is there still a discomfort in parts of Western Europe and elsewhere with leadership coming from Central Eastern Europe? I don't think so. I think uh, maybe Thomas is going to smash me on the head for this. Rhetorically, <laughs> I think what I like seeing right now is that several countries from Central and Eastern Europe are finally really arriving, finding their voices, voicing their interests in Brussels, in, in the EU. So in a way, they have, they have finally arrived now. Same for Northern Europe, by the way. It's not just Central and Eastern Europe. The Northerners are arriving too um, and finding their voice. That said, I don't see leadership coming from there. I think Europe is, is as much about Paris and Berlin as it, as it ever was. What you see, for instance, now uh, is for France, this is the moment for European defense, huh? uh, European sovereignty in, 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 in military terms as well. Germany is scared, wants to rely on, on, on the US as much as it can. So this, this war is driving, this situation is driving a big rift between Germany and France again. A lot of issues, including energy, are completely stuck between the two. They like each other, they talk a lot, they have meeting after meeting, but they, they have different urges uh, at the moment. And this is what everybody is focusing on. Oh, two points on this. Number one, there is actually a test coming up of the willingness, I mean, a very concrete test. I mean, it is 20 years since the enlargement of the European Union, in the case of NATO enlargement and Visegrad, 25 years. And to this day, the only post that has ever been occupied by someone from our part of the world is the largely ceremonial it's, uh, post of the president of the Council of the European Union. Yes. Yeah. Right. But I mean, no one has been, uh, no one has been head of the uh, commission, and there's been no NATO secretary general, and there has been no high representative for common foreign security policy. With even just recently, I read an article. Who's going to be the new NATO Secretary General? Well, there's this person, that person. Well, Kaya Kalas, but she's too hawkish. I mean, that as long as you have that kind of attitude toward a defense organization, I mean, it is 20 years, <laughs> or it will be next year. It'll be 20 years since the enlargement. A year and a half after the enlargement to the neutrals, Austria, Finland, and Sweden, no one said called them the new members. 20 years after the enlargement of the European Union, we're still the new members. This is what Kaya Kalas always says, and she's right, of course. But I would add that nowadays, in Europe, Kaya Kalas has more of, a, of, a, of an influential voice than the leader of Austria. And the other point I was going to say is that we do have this conundrum with Germany versus France, which is that... Um, in our part of the world, the idea of strategic autonomy as advanced by France is dead because we see that the only real guarantor is going to be of security is going to be the United States. Meanwhile, Germany is hiding behind the United States and not moving because it also is used, looking upon German, uh, the United States as the guarantor. Uh, and, then, and if you complicate that, if you read the recent New Yorker interview with uh, Jake Sullivan, yeah. 
where basically it's uh, U.S. policy is driven by a fear of uh, offending Schultz. No such fear on Berlin Side Out, I can assure you of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there, there's also, you know, I mean, I think also that there is also the possibility that Biden is hiding behind Schultz as well. I mean, this is also... <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's mutually reinforcing um, dysfunction. But the I point would. was, where does Europe go? And where are the main, you know, who is having the, 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 the most fundamental discussions with whom on the major issues? The major issue is security and defense. And the major rift is between France and Germany. But I would, I would like to ask a little bit about um, this conception of Europe as, as, as a family and whether that's changing. I mean, we also saw, uh, despite, I think, some discomfort also from France and Germany, we did see um, Ursula von der Leyen, for example, upend you know, decades even of uh, EU enlargement policy with a very, very simple declaration that, quote, Ukraine is a member of the family and we want them in. Um, and, and I think that um, statement was quite significant because as we uh, have sort of been discussing for a long time, uh, Central and Eastern Europe, even the ones who were in, were almost relegated to the kids' table <laughs> in a way rather than the table they with were, the adults. They were, not almost. And... Um, and I want to ask if whether um, the whole idea of now that we are um, that we are now really seem to be properly open to the idea of, of Ukraine joining the EU, and certainly that's uh, borne out in public opinion polls in both France and Germany, where majorities both want Ukraine uh, in the EU. Um, whether we are um, and Hungary and Poland are the biggest opponents. Yeah, exactly. And interesting how that happens. So, um, are we in a diff at, at a moment of reconceiving this idea of? of the European family, and is there an opportunity there? About Europe and the family of Europe, uh, I think that what has also been driven home is an understanding that liberal democracy is what is under major threat from authoritarian and imperialist behavior, not only on the part of Russia, but we see this, uh, we see this elsewhere as well, and this feeling that, well, we really ought, ought to like save our fellow liberal Democrats, meaning meaning Ukraine, of course. And then you, you do have this bizarre situation where Hungary and Poland are the ones, and now Slovakia, uh, I mean, the immediate neighbors are the ones who are most dubious about this for uh, largely, I think, economic reasons. Nonetheless, there is this, uh, I mean, what is pleasing to see on the part of Western Europe is a recognition that, the, that Ukraine is... Uh, spiritually, ideologically, despite all of this crap about Slavic orthodoxy and all this. Nonetheless, I mean, it's, it's like Huntington isn't really being borne out, but rather the ideological choices of a people uh, make them belong to us. Yeah, that's it. And that, that's the Europe's task idea that Václav Havel was so keen on. We're here in Prague, and this is, you know, it's a performative version of Europe and how you do and those choices you make are who defines you, which means there's a way in, which is what France for a long time was blocking. And there was an essential real Europe and an unreal Europe there. But this this question that um, you mentioned before, Alex, we really want to turn to you on this. I mean, there's the question of NATO enlargement on one thing, but also many of the Central Europeans absolutely look to Washington first for security. Can they still rely on being able to do that? Sure. So first to comment on um, the European Union and, and U Ukraine's ultimate involvement. Frankly, there's just not enough progress being made on, on a session, a, a clear roadmap. I think this is one of those things that um, can can go at the pace that uh, Ukrainians uh, have communicated they want it to go quite rapidly, or it could go to the slow bureaucratic pace that 
um, is kind of almost a default setting for the EU. And there's not nearly enough uh, progress being made. I think, I wonder, I'm not sure if that's tied to progress on the battlefield and the recognition that really not much can change until uh, the war comes, starts to wind down. But uh, a lot of the planning could be going on now. It doesn't seem like there's enough. With regards to the U.S. as a security guarantor, uh, it kind of really depends on what administration sweeps into power in 2024. My expectation is it's going to be a Democratic administration. I think the uh, Republicans have proven to be too radical. The population at large has kind of rejected that kind of radicalism, uh, as indicated, uh, you know, as borne out, in fact, in midterm elections and local elections uh, since 2020. Um, you know, there are a huge amount of baggage around uh, Trump's candidacy that has uh, alienated swaths of the American public, including independents. Uh, but he will be the Republican nominee because he will meet the, the threshold of support from a hardcore Republican MAGA, Make American Great Faction that will enable him to be the, the nominee. Um, if he, if things play out the way I expect, we'll have a second Biden administration, which means, frankly, uh, a, a high degree of focus on uh, coalition building, you know, not running too far ahead of the, the slowest elements, in this case, Germany, uh, but really not a lot of driving uh, force behind big ideas like um, bringing uh, Ukraine into the European Union or NATO or accelerating the pace of support. Uh, it's just going to be plodding through. Now, the worst case scenario would be, of course, if uh, Trump or MAGA uh, um, president sweeps in. Because then, frankly, we'll be in, in a brave new world where nobody really understands what, what, what's likely to come. But I think it's going to be the unraveling of NATO. Um, the U.S. will be an unreliable partner. Uh, no longer uh, the expectation of uh, collective defense or Article 5. And maybe even the testing of what uh, Article 5 is for, uh, for uh, Europe and NATO absent in Russia, which is very, very dangerous a recipe for spillover. So I, I think that we are, um, you know, in that kind of world, we could easily see a fracturing of, of uh, NATO and then probably a, a larger uh, European war. I mean, I do not see, and this is strictly the, the war, I do not see how Ukraine can mobilize itself um, during the war to join the EU. I, I led uh, the EU accession for my country against huge opposition because they were like, Germany, no, no, we don't want any former Soviet Republic. It was a full mobilization of the country. That is, the government was, I mean, the amount of reforms we had to do and the, and the political difficulty, because the negotiations are not with the EU, the negotiations are domestic. What are you willing to do, uh, change? And that was a huge effort, and it could not have been done had we been you know, remotely fighting a war. Uh, so I would say that Ukraine is going to be stalled there, not because of either EU being against or a bureaucracy, but rather that the amount of domestic reforms that are called for requires a full mobilization of the state. Which is already mobilized for war. Well, and then uh, couldn't part a pivot towards... Uh, if they, but they can't do two, they can't do yeah. both. It's but can I, can, I sh can I share with you some of my impressions from Brussels? where all this negotiating um, is, 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 is done, they have like a, a, a DG, a, like a, a ministry, DG near it's called. And so 
they used to have uh, the instructions in DGNIR. There are hundreds of people working there on the Western Balkans desks, on the Georgia desk, on the Ukraine desk, for years and years because of this fatigue that we discussed earlier. They had the instructions. Be very precise, don't go too fast, and be, don't be political. And now this is totally reversed. I was there the other day at this uh, DG. People are being told, be creative, don't be bureaucratic, and go bloody fast. And it's all political. And what you see now is that what, with the, with the uh, enlargement, in, the big enlargement of 2004 um, that your country uh, did, um, you had all these chapters and everything had to be closed before you could enter and so on. All this is out of the window. So they are focusing on the low-hanging fruit first. They're already in the roaming uh, zones. They've, they've connect, been connected to the electricity grid, parts of the internal market. They're already joining because of the association agreement. So they are doing, they, they, they're doing it as they go. And they're trying also to, by doing it like this, to slowly, slowly, you know, step by step, get the country in and not in just one big bang, which is super interesting which is totally new from Brussels to think like right. this. Right, and this in the shadow of Macron's speech in Bratislava, there was the von der Leyen speech, which announced exactly this, which exactly. was actually picking up the ideas from the Czech presidency it. last year that specifically explored differentiated, accelerated sectoral integration as a way of regenerating that reward and reform cycle that is so crucial to this process. And they even want the European Investment Bank, which has a very limited mandate drawn up by the member states, they want the bank to throw money at this. You know, they're mobilizing the member states and the commission are mobilizing everyone to make this happen. Two things just to point out. I mean, one, it would be great if someone could get this message properly to Berlin, because in our discussions that we have in Berlin with, with people in the parliament, with the ministries and so on, it's always the obstacles you hear about first. It is always the problems. Everybody always, when it comes to Europe, always talks about problems. And there are lots of problems, and that's why we have this EU in the first place, to try yeah. to solve it and not shoot at each other, but solve problems with words. But what, right, so what cuts through that? And there was one statement made at the Versailles meeting in March the 10th last year, 2022, where we all had hopes that EU Ukraine's EU candidacy was going to be approved. It wasn't, but apparently, according to certain people we talked to, one of the things that stuck with Macron and helped to change Macron's mind was the statement from a, a leader from the Baltic states, who will remain nameless, in that room that said, we have to give the idea to a Ukrainian soldier who is dying on the battlefield that he's dying so his children can live in the European Union. And it took a while for that to filter through. But by June, Macron's position had changed. Ruta's position has changed. Even Schotts's position has changed. But now we're seeing the bureaucratic fight back against that. I'm not sure we see a bureaucratic fight back. I mean, bureaucracy is bureaucracy. Our negotiations with the UK after the Brexit referendum were, got stuck. I mean, it, it's a rules-based market. Don't forget that. It's the only real source of power that the European Union has. It's market. So we said, no, the British wanted to get out, but, you know, keep access to the single market without abiding uh, by our rules. We said no to that. We say no to the Swiss all the time who want the same thing. So we cannot just, uh, you know, pull Ukraine in. Uh, some are even advocating that. Uh, just like that. What are we going to tell the UK? What, are we, what will be left of our, our market? So we need, we have rules and we need a bureaucracy to guard the rules. This is normal. But having said that, you can do processes uh, in, in, in different ways. But 
we cannot just forget about the bureaucracy because it is part of what we are. One thing, especially for the Ukrainian listeners to this podcast, actually, we have to avoid that. We do not blame the bureaucracy. Our experience in joining the EU for over, because I was foreign minister for that whole period, was that our biggest friends were actually the commission and our biggest enemies were the, the member states that, did, that pushed slowing down. The commission was constantly helping us. They were for us. It was, the, it was basically the big countries of Western Europe that was slowing things down and blocking things. Well, in Ursula von der Leyen's uh, speech, you know, and quote, we, Ukraine is a member of the family. I mean, yeah. that is a declaration that also came ahead of, uh, ahead of the big member states as well. It so is. an interesting point. And what, what Ulf Christensen said at the Munich Security Conference this year when he said accession has to be, for Ukraine, has to be merit-based. But merit-based cannot, again, be an excuse for going soft and going slow. I mean, that encapsulates the position well, but again, I think it needs to be heard a little louder in some capitals. I would like to actually um, take this question a little bit into something that we often talk about um, about on this podcast and, and also around neo-idealism um, is, uh, and liberal internationalism is the obsession sometimes with liberal, liberal process over liberal outcome. Um, and uh, I'll bring it to one specific policy that I would first actually like to ask you, Thomas, about, and then, you know, if you, the rest of you have comments about, um, I'd be happy to hear it. And that is uh, countries like Estonia um, that advocated for, for example, a, a ban on visas issued to Russian nationals. And this is something that uh, made uh, certain political elites in Western capitals very uncomfortable, um, I think because, precisely because of the obsession with liberal process. It didn't sound like a liberal uh, measure to take. And yet uh, we had uh, the frontline countries, including even Finland as well, not simply the Baltics, argue that this was still a necessary um, a step uh, that might seem illiberal in process, but was necessary for a liberal outcome. Why do you think uh, this kind of policy is consistent with... Because it's national security mm -hmm. because you come to countries where it's easy to, to get by speaking Russian and we've had enough experiences over the past 30 years uh, with active meddling that which you don't get in the the Western European countries I mean this is there's a, there are times when liberalism is trumped by national security interest and our experience has very much been the abuse of these things for uh, basically to advance Russian causes, and that was why we did it. But defending democracy requires sometimes a policy like this, right? Yes. I mean, the point is that if you want to defend your country, you know, whatever, whatever ideology you have, you have national security comes first. Uh, and that may violate kind of, I mean, I'm not sure visa policy is necessarily an element of liberalism. It is one of the things you choose to do based on your own security needs. Well, I think there's even a more salient point right now, actually. Israel post-Hamas attack is a very practical application. The most profound responsibility a state has is to its citizens. A democratic state has to its citizens. It, has, it also has a role in, in you know, promoting those values broadly, but it has a profound responsibility, and that security our responsibility right now for Israel is paramount. So they're going to do what they need to in order to secure the population. They're also going to abide by uh, the law of war, which is different than international humanitarian law. Uh, so they're going to try to do, do, minimize the casualties. But um, And this is a huge tension internally to the state of Israel. How do, they, how do they secure their population, root out Hamas, but at the same time, 
live by the values, the democratic, you know, kind of liberal democratic values that, this, that, that are integral to the state. And I think sometimes, as Tomas mentioned, you have to balance those and maybe even suppress them for security needs and security urgencies. I'm always, I think I'm always fascinated by the Fulbright programs, by the cultural diplomacy and political diplomacy that the U.S. has. When the United States was on its way to become a, a, a superpower over a century ago, it really started using all these study grants and programs, exchange programs, as a means to invite people from different countries who didn't have liberal democracy to show you know, how good it was and how nice it was. This, wait, despite, despite the, um, the things that they would hear in their own countries. I think Europe should use this much more. We don't have this. Um, and I, have, I, um, I think it's too late now. And I understand the security concerns, of course. They are different in Estonia than they are in, in the Netherlands. And even in the Netherlands, we have them now. Having said that, I think we have not done enough to reach out to the Russian opposition, for instance, to ordinary citizens in Russia who get fed you know, all these total bullshit aggression from Europe and Europe starting a war in, in Ukraine. They believe all that because they, they don't have anything else. The, moreover, we are not offering them visa. I have a friend who works in Paris. She's a lawyer. She tries, she works with, with, with Russian refugees, people who've been married to Ukrainians, who've lived in Ukraine for over 20 years. Their Ukrainian spouse gets you know, immediately uh, the, the, the famous three-year, what is it called, the, the status in, in Europe. But the, 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 the Russian, even though his or her heart is totally uh, on, on the right side, we push these people out. It's not good. I think we need a solution for that. And with full understanding for the security concerns of countries like yours. I understand. But I think we've missed an opportunity there. So... Having worked on EU visa issues for 20 years and including on the visa liberalization process for Ukraine, I mean, it's very clear to the European Union how important that visa policy actually is as a tool of transformative power. And getting rid of that obstacle for Ukrainians coming in, seeing European practices for themselves was absolutely crucial. But also crucial was their willingness to change towards that and their willingness to adopt that. Russians had had that same chance and hadn't taken it. And this, this, no, I mean, it seems to me to be analogous to the Vandal Durk Handel mistake, which is that change through trade will only work if you really push for that change as well. And what we risk is actually change coming the other way, as we saw in, in Germany, and risking Russian destabilization through allowing this visa policy with no real reward incentive, no real carrots or sticks attached to it. I mean, who, the leading, the woman who's the leading uh, propagandist in, uh, in Russian TV spent a year in Middlebury, or one of the, one of the arch liberal... I think the biggest, the best case, which is, is Latvia and the Netherlands. Netherlands now has TV dodged. They moved out of Latvia because there was a guy on TV dodged collecting money for the Russian army fighting in Ukraine. And this was just, I mean, Latvia offered this dissident alternative radio, a TV station a place because, yeah, come here and you can do your stuff. And then this imperial mindset just came through and they were like, okay, here we are. Now we can say, let's collect money from the West for our troops. And the Latvians were like horrified. It was like, what? 
And they said, basically, you got to leave. I mean, they, they're still there a little bit, but they moved to the Netherlands. The thing about Schengen and the visas, right, what a lot of people said at that time was that this was against the Schengen acquis. It wasn't. You can shut that, the, the, the move to shut down tourist visas for Russians. You can do it. Article 6.1e. If your national security is threatened, if your international relations are considered to be threatened, you can shut that down. But the impression that everyone had was that this was some illegal move or it was something against the spirit or so on and so forth. It's the question of the will to actually defend. We have closed the door to the Russian opposition, basically. But I would argue Sorry, that's a Sorry, since we have closed the door... They have no choice but, you know, to abide by Putin's rules. These people are locked up. I think that's true. Up. I think the liberals are unfortunately almost as complicit as the conservatives. And the Some reason is them, because, because there's a, a sense of Russian exceptionalism that believes in, in Russian uh, uh, regional power. And I don't think the fact is that, you know, uh, I completely agree with the, uh, the exchange programs that the U.S. Has, has been promoting. In the military, we had extensive programs, and most people remember the failures rather than the successes. Mm -hmm. Many, many successes. The failures are the ones that are notable because sometimes uh, these, these people that participate in the programs come to national leadership. But by and large, these programs have been transformative in Central and Eastern Europe and other places around the world. But there are, we also have to understand where they've fallen short. They have not produced you know, kind of a, a bastion or a core of kind of Western liberalism that is a, a counterweight to Russian power, mainly because Russian, Russian power suppresses those populations. I would, well, I mean, there are a couple of things. First of all, I think, I mean, I'm much more skeptical about the Russian liberal opposition, which to me and to many of us has proven to be far more imperialist and imperial-minded than we would assume would be uh, for a liberal. I mean, the the kinds of things you read where, I mean, a leading so-called liberal opposition journalist living in the West is, you bolts, wait until we take over, get rid of Putin, and we will have an efficient army, and then you better watch out. I mean, that kind of mentality. The other part of the visa policy is that there have too, been too many cases that we've seen with people who are on tourist visas you know, basically abusing people. And that, that when you see just one video of someone uh, sort of laughing at you, a Russian, waving a Russian flag, laughing at, uh, laughing at Ukrainians. Many of whom would, might be refugees. I'm saying the situation is not so black and white. Yes, there are people in the opposition who have lived in the US or in Europe who are the most radical, far, ultra far right nationalists in Russia now. But yes, there are also people who are trapped and who cannot get out and who, who, des who deserve our assistance, in but my view. There, there are other places they can go. And there is no obligation on the European Union yes, to host that. And this, the, the, I mean, the Red the, Sea resorts. Well, they so are. On. And, you know, that's, that's fine. But the idea that they could come here and parasite on our freedom without paying any of the costs actually paying into it or even demonstrating there is a liberal tendency. They might be in opposition, but are they liberal? It really remains to be seen. In Honestly, there's, there's something to be said about the fact that our societies are penetrated um, by by Russia in a way that's actually harmful to our institutions. Like think about London grad or the, the amount of Russian money in, in the US and in, in, in Netherlands, all throughout Europe that's actually arresting good security policy. So I think there's something to be said about being maybe open to, to society. And I think we should also do more of an effort, but this is always problematic in Europe. The Americans are very proud of their own culture. Europeans are not. You know, we are always debunking ourselves. We are always 
excuse my language, pissing on what we are doing. Nothing is ever good enough for us. We are totally cynical about the things we achieve in Europe. No, it's never perfect, but this was precisely the idea, that we keep talking to each other and stop fighting, and I keep coming back to this. In a Europe where everybody needs to be heard, we work with compromises of compromises, and it is very, too easy to be negative about it all the time and only focus on the things that don't work. There are lots of things that do work. And guess what? They stick. And I think it is time, you know, we, we are talking about liberal democracy and how liberal democracy can survive and even thrive in the rest of the world. So if we are so convinced that we want to continue this, why can't we use this in our diplomacy? I think we should start doing this much more. And this is one of the driving forces behind neo-idealism, is to be able to say the power of values conceived as ideals to strive for and keep working towards. The question is how we best get there, and that's some of the divisions we've seen exposed today. But that common ground is absolutely there. Thanks very much to Thomas Ilvis, Caroline Goita, and Alexander Vinman for that great introduction uh, to the region and to the issues and themes uh, that Germany will have to take up, uh, in particular when it comes to a new relationship relationship with Central and Eastern Europe, right, Ben? That's right. And it's that relationality that we're really trying to draw out. Because as we saw in that discussion, it's not just Central and Eastern Europe, which you can define in various ways. It's also its relations right. with other parts of Europe and indeed the wider world. And that's what we're going to be looking at more on the rest of this season of Berlin Inside Out, where we go to the Baltics, to the Nordics, and to Western Europe and to France, as well as then across the Atlantic via the UK to the US and Canada, to understand that inside-outside perspective on Germany today, how it sees the world and the world sees it going forward and what that means for the country's geostrategic choices and how to make the best of them. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to it. We hope you are too. Uh, so do join us for those. That is all for this episode of Berlin Side Out. Uh, this time for the last time from Prague. Uh, auf Wiedersehen. Tschüss and... Hasta luego.